Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the Church and Culture Podcast. Jim and I are in separate spaces again this week per usual, but I say that because if you haven't caught last week's episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do that. We had so much fun with our first ever live Church and Culture Podcast. Jim, I was worried for you, but you did really well. That was, yeah, that went a lot smoother than it I thought it, it was. It was a lot of fun. and great questions. Oh, yeah. Hopefully we'll do some more of those in the future. We don't have any dates right now, but we'll get back to on that. Um, But today um, we are going to go in a little bit of a different direction. So we did a podcast a a while back. um, Let me see. It was episode 33, episode 33. And that podcast episode was on heresy. And it was a great conversation. I definitely recommend you go back and listen to it, preface for today's conversation. But I had some interesting follow-up conversations about that podcast episode, um, particularly people wanting to know about modern modern heretical movements. Like I think that you we definitely painted the picture of wow, we are susceptible to believing things that are not biblical, but how are we? Or what are the um, what are the common threats of the day? And there was there was one that came to mind for me before, but we hadn't talked about it, and I want to unpack that today. Um, and that is the modern heretical movement called the prosperity gospel movement. Um, you may also have heard it referred to as the health and wealth gospel. So, Jim, why don't you start us off by giving a brief explanation of prosperity theology? Yeah, um, I'll, let me give a very simplistic one because you can write entire books on this. But I mean, it, in essence, it's the idea that when you come to Christ. Uh, your salvation involves not just eternal benefits, but some immediate temporal ones. Um, uh, the kingdom has come, and it's meant to be embraced, and it's meant to come to your life, and that comes with benefits. And specifically, uh, so far most Christians will say, well, of course. Yeah, but specifically physical health and financial uh, wealth, hence the tag health and wealth. Some call it the name it, claim it approach to things. Um you know, you want something, all you have to do is just believe God for it, have have faith for it, um, because he's wanting you to have it. He's wanting you to have everything you want. And one of the most common, certainly in the areas of health and wealth, one of the most commonly cited passages of the Bible for this is uh, the very opening of John's third letter. You know, there's first, second, third John in the New Testament. And that opening letter, John writes to, to Gaius, he says, you know, I, I hope it's well with you. And that yeah, you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. Kind of an opening greeting. Now, at first glance, you may not think that there's much there to talk about, and, and you would be right. I mean, it's a fairly generic greeting using standard niceties between two good friends. You know, I hope you're as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. That was kind of like a standard, you know, hello, you know, hope everything is good with you and your family. Or, you know, I hope this finds you doing well. But some have taken it to mean something more, that it was not a greeting as much as a declaration, a statement that if you are sound in spirit, you will be healthy in body. And if you're spiritually healthy, you're going to be physically healthy and not just physically healthy, but materially well off as well. And off to the preaching races you go. Again, this is called the health and wealth gospel. 
And I'm sorry to say that it's very prevalent uh, among those who are known as prosperity preachers, uh, many of whom are on TV. They're plastered all over the Internet. Of course, that was not at all what John was saying. Uh, he wasn't trying to say anything theologically prescriptive at all. He was just starting off a letter with a common greeting of the day. We know that because that kind of greeting was widely used in letters and correspondence during that time. We know it wasn't unique to John. Uh, he knew that Gaius, was, was, um, who was a recipient of this letter, was doing very well spiritually. And uh, he had confidence in that. So he just kind of opened up by saying, I hope and pray that you're feeling and doing as well as I know you're doing well with Christ. So with that in mind, I, I, because I think it's important for this conversation, and um, this is an old seminary professor in me, with that in mind, you know, let, let's, let, let me just say a word or two on how to, how to read and interpret the Bible. We, we can't say this enough. One of the most important principles is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh, let the Bible interpret the Bible. For example, if John was saying something as significant and provocative as the guarantee of health and wealth, uh, if you walk closely with Christ, that would be kind of a big deal. It would be a theological headline throughout all of Scripture. It would be one of the primary teachings of Jesus. It would be one of the major cardinal doctrines of all things. I mean, that's a significant thing. You walk with Christ, you're going to be wealthy, and you're going to be physically healthy. Um, and it would be a clear principle taught throughout Scripture. It isn't. And so that should lead anyone reading this to be careful to not read too much into an opening greeting like this, particularly something as sweeping as the idea of health and wealth being tied to your relationship with Jesus. Now, one can certainly bring, uh, I mean, God can certainly bring about material blessing. Uh, he can certainly heal us, and we can talk about that more. But it is also true that some of the greatest saints in the Bible uh, faced all kinds of persecution, poverty, difficulties. You know, I'm reminded of, of the Apostle Paul. It's interesting, you know, where he, 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 he talked about his thorn in the flesh and that he prayed three times for that to be removed, and it wasn't. And a lot of people read that, and what often isn't understood, if, because you have to kind of dig a little bit about what, is, what do you mean three times? That doesn't sound like much of a labor. Literally, the Greek idea was he, he took three seasons of his life, three eras, to pray fervently that he would be released and healed from this? And the answer was no, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. You know, my, I'm, my strength is going to show up best in weak people. That's, that's, that's my plan for you. And, um, and so, uh, so that ought to make you pause, you know, right there and reading anything more than a greeting in the opening of Third John. But a second little biblical principle or interpret, interpretation principle, and, and these are real principles. I mean, there's an entire science of interpretation called hermeneutics. Um, and these are principles that are part of that science. But besides letting scripture interpret scripture is to make sure that you never take a verse out of its context. Uh, and this is a great example. Uh, John is writing to address an internal issue within the church relating to a major personality conflict, in this case, a person named Diotrephes. And there's nothing in the letter about the problem of pain or evil or poverty or about how a walk with God brings wealth or success. I mean, there's just none of that's in the letter. It's, it's not at all the topic of the letter. So to read that into the greeting would be uh, would not be exegesis, which is discovering what the text itself says. It would be eisegesis, which is adding to what the text says from the outside. Um, I can take, you know, verses out of context and say anything I want. I can just rip a verse out here, rip a verse out there and, and put them together out of their context. And you can say things that are crazy. For example, you know, there's an old joke. 
You know, you take uh, uh, these three verses out of context. You take Matthew 27, 5, Judas went out and hanged himself. Mm-hmm. Luke 10, 37, Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. And then John 13, 27, what you were about to do, do quickly. <laughs> not, a, not a good message. The context is clear. This is a personal letter uh, opening with a common greeting of the day to segue into a particular issue that John was writing to Gaius about. It has nothing to say about a health and a wealth byline to the gospel. Nothing in scripture does. There's just a difference uh, between understanding anything is possible if you have faith and making that a personal thing and understanding it to be a statement about God, that when it comes to God, anything is possible through faith. In other words, nothing is beyond him. There's no limit on what God can do. That's way different than no limits on what God can be faith action through your prayers and forced to do if you just have enough faith. Do you see the difference between the two? It's yeah, that's interesting. very, very important. Mm-hmm. Now, I've read several theories regarding the origins of the prosperity gospel movement. So I'm curious, like, what is your research shown? When did this come on the map? You know, I haven't spent a lot of time researching uh, prosperity theology. To me, it's been such, um, again, I, 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 it's just so easily dismissed. It's, it's just so, it's just so, um, it, it's not exactly a, a great big biblical challenge to strap on just to, to show how it's, it's so far field. And so it hasn't been something that has intrigued me to dig super deep into, but I, I have dug into it enough to understand it. And, and, and to be honest with you, the history of it doesn't go that far back. Okay. Not, not in its modern form. I mean, the mainstream history has it rooted in post-World War II Pentecostal revivals. Uh, now, again, let me just quickly say to all of our Pentecostal uh, charismatic friends, don't automatically say that if you're Pentecostal charismatic, you automatically believe in prosperity theology. They don't. Many, many, many within the Pentecostal movement and charismatics denounce the prosperity theology. But it did begin. It was rooted in World War II Pentecostal revivals, select Pentecostal revivals. And then later, what was known as the Word of Faith movement. It spread throughout uh, 1980s televangelism. Uh, particularly in the United States, uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, it spread through influential leaders, again, largely in the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement. But again, I just want to make sure we're not painting with too broad of a brush there that everyone in that movement embraces this, but that's where it spread. Sure. Um, and so you have names associated with it, such as Benny Hinn, uh, Oral Roberts, Robert Tilton, uh, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Reverend Ike, uh, Kenneth Hagan, Joseph Prince, Paula White, more. But if you dig deeper, there are other streams that fed into this. And for me, this 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 gets a little more interesting for me. Um, so maybe I'm betraying that I have dug into this more than I for, that I just was mentioning. Uh, first, the American gospel of individualism. You know, you can do anything if you set your mind to it. You know, Norman Vincent Peale and the power of positive thinking. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a huge aspect of, of American, uh, pop psychology and, and self-help and, and, and that fed into this as well as even deeper. And this is where, um, it may surprise some people. There's a stream of what is known as, uh, uh, what is known as new thought. Uh, this was a spiritual movement in the United States, largely during the early 19th century. And it looked back to what was known as Ancient thought is found in the ancient Greeks and Romans and Egyptians and and such and considered their new thought the next evolution of, say, Egyptian thinking. Mm 
or Greek thinking. In essence, New Thought believed in the power of the mind hmm. to achieve health and wealth. And see if this sounds familiar. If you can imagine it, you can do it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Positivity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very pagan, occultic idea. It's also very prevalent. Yeah, it is. But it's also very pagan, very occultic. You won't, you won't mm-hmm. find that in scripture. In many ways, though, this was the foundation of the self-help movement and a lot of popular psychology. Uh, This morphed into something known as seed faith, uh, largely through Oral Roberts in the late uh, 1940s into the 1950s, who really, um, and and, and I don't mind saying this, I mean, as a theologian, he trivialized even the idea of a miracle. You know, I mean, he would open his programs by saying, have you had your miracle for today? Which kind of is the antithesis of what a miracle is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that you, you, you make an act of faith as in giving a seed offering. A lot of this is tied with money and, and that seed will grow. And this led into all kinds of crazy, everything from prayer cloths anointed with miracle oil to miracle tent shavings from a revival event. Mm-hmm. So you, you take that into prayer and faith. And you have this melting pot of God's blessing, the American dream and positive thinking, faith and prayer. And it eventually became not only the health and wealth gospel, but the word of faith, how you can speak something into being. Essentially, God at best is treated like a cosmic bellhop that we can order to do our bidding. We say jump and he says how high. And at worst, though, it's like casting a magical spell that uh, akin to the occult in order to get a spirit to do our bidding. You know, I've thought a lot about heresy since we've talked to this last time and I talked in our previous conversation about it. And I feel like, because I mentioned that this is, I would, I would call this a modern heretical movement. I mean, certainly as you just described in terms of like new, new thought, like you don't need a God to believe in this. I mean, there is, there are secular versions of, you know, um, just, reframe situations or just use your um, mind and you can grasp whatever you want. But certainly as it has to do with the Bible, you know, I've come to understand that heresy, when you hear that word, you think of, gosh, like, I don't know, like an intentional movement meant to dissuade people, you know, it just, it feels very intentional. But I guess as I've kind of studied more about the heretical movements, especially in early church history, is that I think I've seen them to be less deliberate distortions of the Bible and more like inadequate expressions of who God really is or what is required for salvation. And so I'm interested with prosperity theology, like how does it distort the way that we view God or understand the role or needs of salvation? Yeah. And I think that it does the distortion by so many distortions, so many heresies, there's a grain of truth. Yeah. You know, there's something there that they're building off of that's there. For example, I mean, um, I think when you and I were going back and forth about various things as you were proposing this to me, I mean, you were pointing out things like, uh, you know, the promise to Abraham to make Mm -hmm. him into a great nation or the material blessings God bestowed on Jacob and Joseph and David. And obviously Solomon was was Mm -hmm. was huge. And, you know, the passage in Luke, you know, where. Uh, give and you will receive, you know, mm-hmm. and the gift will return to you. Let, so, so let's think about this idea of blessing. In the Bible, a blessing was all about supernatural favor. 
from the hand of God. It was something that came from God onto a life. Uh, it wasn't just about getting a little bit more of what we could get for ourselves. A blessing was about the incredible, wonderful goodness that only God had the power and the knowledge to give. Which is why, in the, for example, in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, and let me test my memory here, but I think it's Proverbs 10, uh, but I could be wrong on that, but where, where, where it says something along the lines that the, the Lord's blessing is our greatest gift. Hmm. Um, which is why we, we leave the kind of blessing God would bring entirely up to God. Uh, when it comes to asking God to bless our life, what the blessing would be, as well as the where and the when and the how, is to be, is to be totally left up to God. So this isn't about asking for a Lexus. This isn't about asking for a seven-figure income. Nothing that would cash in on the supernatural power of God. Hmm. To pray for blessing is nothing more and nothing less than wanting what God wants for us. It's about what God wants to do in us, through us, and for us, and supremely in us, through us, and for us, for the kingdom. So it's, it's, it's selfless. It's selfless. You know, when you say, God, bless me, it may be that his, his blessing to you is for you to do something incredibly sacrificial that serves other people. Yeah. Um, so think about something like the promise of blessing that comes with our financial giving. Let's, let's cut right to the money thing, because so much of okay. this is, is the prosperity preaching and so many things is built off of you give, you'll get, you do this, you'll receive this in return. And it's just like a, a, a cottage industry. And this is where, again, a lot of the health and wealth prosperity preachers focus on. Give and you'll receive. And, and, and uh, um, often, you know, that, that classic text in Malachi, mm -hmm. which says, you know, tithe and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven to you. That's true. That's scripture. That's inspired by God. Um, but what kind of blessing are we talking about here? Um, there are two extremes people can take on what the Bible is teaching. The first extreme is to fall into what we've been calling a name it, claim it, health and wealth approach that says something like tithe. And you too will supernaturally find a BMW in your driveway because God will get you one. Um, and he'll throw in a 10,000 square foot home. That's not just crazy. That's false teaching. And that's not even what Malachi is saying. Uh, I know you hear it all the time on TV. It's, it's a lie and it's not biblical. And it's one of the most screwed up uh, theologies you can get when it comes to money. You know, God wants you rich. I, I mean, I defy you to show that to me in scripture. Uh, but there's, a, um, there's another extreme that's just as off base. I see it all the time where people react so strongly to the health and wealth gospel that they swing the pendulum to the other side. And, and it's equally wrong. It's equally wrong to say that God doesn't want to bless you at all financially. That that's not in his arsenal of blessing. That there's no relationship at all between, for example, what you do financially and what God does in your life. And that's not true either. That's not true either. Malachi is making a very clear point that that's not, you know, the case either. The Bible teaches without qualifications that if you follow God, for example, under this aspect of financial management, he'll bless your life. Um, we can say that without blushing. But what kind of blessing are we talking about? Uh, well, it's up to God. And whenever I teach on this, I go out of my way to make sure that people understand this because, you know, it, otherwise you can fall into prosperity teaching. Um, it could be financial, without a doubt. It could also be the blessing of, of security. It could be the blessing of joy, depth of character, fulfillment, uh, impact, 
influence, um, creativity. Uh, there can be blessing for God on relationships and marriages and, and, and families. There can be, there can be favor shown on an enterprise, uh, an expansion, you know, be given a breakthrough of some kind, the attempt of a, on a discovery of some sort. You, um, so, so you see how something good and biblical, like the blessing that comes with giving can get distorted, not only about health and wealth, but also about diverting it from the kingdom to mere individual gain. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I really resonated with what you said earlier too about how it trivializes God to the point of like making him like a bellhop or a genie. Because I I think I can see how some might feel like this is kind of an attractive way to display God to people, but it's just not a very honest way to display God, nor do we, I think at the end of the day, really want a God who is, I don't know, who who, who is a bellhop. I mean, that's not... It's not really the God that we want at the end of the day. Um, and so, it, yeah, I just, as I think about how heresies really minimize who God is, it, it feels like this is, it, it's pretty obvious how we do that. We, we make God, we make ourselves the God and then have God be our servant or our genie um, rather than being a God who walks with us in suffering and brings purpose to darkness. And yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like it, we're really minimizing God in that way. Um, you mentioned the... <laughs> that the wealth aspect of the health and wealth gospel is the one that gets a lot of press. I mean, it certainly has been manipulated in a way that has um, given people a really bad taste in their mouth for any church who talks about money anytime. But there is the other side of that. There's the health part too. And so can you talk a little bit more about how prosperity theology articulates the realities of of pain and suffering? How, how, How does that all work? Yeah, that there shouldn't be pain and suffering almost. I mean, it almost comes across that crass and that if you do have pain and suffering, I mean, it almost falls into a theology that says if you have pain and suffering, then obviously that's just sin in your life or a lack of faith in your life. I mean, it's an indictment on your life. In essence, they claim that the ultimate healing power of God is alive and well, but that the claim of healing, the claim to power over God's illness is absolute and readily available to anyone and everyone. That illness really has no place in the kingdom of God. And since the kingdom has come and the full kingdom has, has is arrived, uh, then the problem is that you just don't have faith and, and you haven't prayed or you haven't embraced this. Now, the problem with that, of course, is pretty, again, low hanging is if it were true, why are people still sick? Yeah. I mean, even the saints. I mean, we mentioned the Apostle Paul and, and others. I mean, uh, why do people get, get sick? Well, in fact, why does everybody still die? 100% death rate. You know, so so we have to have a view of healing that obviously, you know, ends and runs its course and people die. So it's obviously a flawed theology, but healing itself is biblical. Uh, Jesus, I mean, uh, James makes it very clear. I mean, the, the, the classic passage is in, is in James where, where he makes it very, very clear. And is he's writing to multiple churches throughout, you know, the early Christian movement that, you know, if you're sick, you should call for the elders of the church and have them come and pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And he's very clear. He says, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. That sounds without qualification. Uh, so he says, you can and should pray about everything and prayer should permeate your lifestyle. And then he adds that this includes those who are sick, that that's legal to pray for. But And then he gets four steps that are very important. First, it's for those who are sick, really sick. 
Uh, when Jesus, uh, when James, I'm sorry, says to to um, get prayer for being sick, sick, he means if you're really sick. This is not about ingrown toenails. This is not about a bad hair day. Uh, but James doesn't want to limit it to just severe physical illness. Uh, if we're going to, you know, treat this passage fairly, the word he used for sick in the Greek uh, carried several meanings. Uh, severe physical sickness, yes, uh, but also extreme spiritual difficulties and severe mental and emotional difficulties. The common denominator, though, is that there really is a need for divine intervention, not just normal medical care. That's very important. Where like we've exhausted everything. This needs God. Hmm. This is, uh, yeah, and we need him to show up and do what only he can do. Second, James says that the people to go to for this prayer are the pastors or elders of your church. In the New Testament, the pastors are the elders, are the bishops, the three terms, pastor for poime, uh, elders, presbyteros, uh, Bishop, Episcopos, they're all three used interchangeably and synonymously. So when it says call for the elders of the church, call for the pastors of the church, however your church is structured. Um, there's nothing about professional faith healers or traveling healing revivals. It's very rooted in the local church of which you are a part. Yes, uh, in the great listings of gifts in the Bible, uh, Romans 12, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4, you've, you've, got, you've got the gift of healing is mentioned among those lists. Um, but it's really interesting, it's in the plural, if you study that, the gift of healings. And it could be doctors, counselors, so many different ways where, you know, just, just the, the, the gift of healing is happening, but it's not necessarily this traveling roadshow. So you should ask the pastor of your church who would... Um, Ideally, gather a few other individuals uh, who function pastorally in the life of the church to pray for you. Um, and again, does that mean you do that in place of going to a doctor? And the answer is heavens, no. It just, it just, you know, it, it just means that as you seek every available avenue of healing, particularly in situations where there are limits to what the medical world can do for you, ask God to work. Um, the third step Jesus, uh, James gives is for the elders or pastors to anoint the person with oil. In the ancient world, oil was a, a very well-known medicine, but that's not how it's being referenced here. This is more of a tangible symbol of faith. Uh, you would anoint someone with oil to set them apart, uh, to mark them for blessing. When I do it, and we do practice this, obviously, here at MEC um, as, a, as a part of the life of our church, it's biblical. Um, I just take a little bit of oil on the tip of my finger and make, I just make the mark of the cross, uh, on their forehead. Well, fourth, James, uh, then says to pray for their healing, ask God to step in and do what only he can do. And, and God will, James says, God will, you know, the, you, you know, anybody who wants to water that one down, you can't, you can't water that one down. James says that he will. But having said that, there's all kinds of ways to be healed. Uh, someone can be healed physically. Of course, I believe that. And I've seen it happen. Uh, they can also be given an emotional healing or the gift of spiritual strength and healing to get through a trying time. The prayer for healing should be given by God uh, working through, I mean, or it also could be, um, uh, the prayer for healing could also be just, you know, God working through the skilled hands of doctors and nurses and medical breakthroughs for their gifts and abilities. Um, I always tell people when I pray, 
for them in this way, that I have no idea how God is going to respond. I just know that he's going to respond. I don't know what kind of healing he's going to bring. I just know he's going to bring healing. Uh, you know, God will do whatever he wants. I just know he's going to do something. Uh, something that wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have prayed this way. And I can say that with absolute confidence because that's exactly what scripture teaches. Um, I want to go back a little bit to when you were talking about the origins of prosperity theology because you talked a lot about kind of how it popped up here in the U.S. But um, my, my first exposure to it was actually when I was living in Argentina um, several years ago. Um, evangelicalism is on the rise there for sure. And so many of the, the churches that I visited there were lovely. Um, but I noticed that most of the biggest churches, um, at least in the city, were those that promoted prosperity theology. And this made sense to me in the sense that like, in particularly in Buenos Aires, you know, in a, in a city that is used to economic crises and unyielding inflation and political corruption, you know, that hearing a message from this well-dressed, you know, flashy preacher, um, you know, say things like, God is going to give you that promotion, or he will make you wealthy, or he will protect you from sickness. I mean, gosh, that goes down really well. And that translates into so much needed relief and hope um, for so many people. And yet, like, the prosperity gospel is very prevalent in the U.S. too, in all of our abundance of wealth. And so could you talk a little bit about where prosperity theology is prevalent? Why? Maybe for who? Yeah, I, I just think it the people that it reaches and the locations is so vast that it's not just like, it's, it's not a small pie um, of, of the world that this is reaching. Well, it's God in our image, isn't it? You know, we it, it it's it's the God that we we want, who the God who meets my needs, the God who works for me, the the God who is all about my health and is all about my wealth. is a very narcissistic, self-serving type of approach. Um, it's very appealing to the poor. I find it very appealing to the wealthy uh, because the poor, uh, you know, is appealing because they so desperately want to break out of poverty and they so desperately have day in day out needs or subsistence living and so if it's like oh my gosh if you know i you know god is my ticket out god is my ticket to to hope as you said and i think that's really clear um i sometimes i feel like uh that the the manipulation and i'll use that word that comes through prosperity preaching to the poor is getting them to get is getting money out of them almost the same way the lottery tries to get money out of them you know this is going to be your way to, to break out you're going to strike it big and if you just, you know, you know, have luck with the lottery or faith with God, you know, but, you know, you're, 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 you're forking over for one of, for, for that. The wealthy find it just affirming. I don't feel bad for my wealth. I don't feel guilty for my wealth. I don't feel like I've got to use my wealth for the kingdom. It's given to me for my own enjoyment to do with as I want. I, I, I you know, it's everything about, you know, I, I, I have worked hard for this. I am, you know, it's an affirmation of my relationship with God that I'm doing well. And so it's a feel good for those, you know, two extremes. Um, and it's just a therapeutic model of ministry, a therapeutic model of theology. And, and it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very concerning. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go so far. I don't, I don't, I don't mind. It's spiritual malpractice. Yeah. It, it's terrible spiritual malpractice. And it takes advantage of people. It manipulates people. It uses, and, and then many of these people who are behind it, are then using what they gain for their own personal wealth and 
you know, their second and third airplane and their 10,000 square foot houses and whatever else that they're doing, you know, preachers with sneakers and, you know, all this stuff that you, you, you know, and, and I, I, I do feel like it's, 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 it's nauseating to the God who cares so deeply about the poor is so enraged by their oppression and, and for those within the Christian faith to be taking advantage of the poor this way, that to me is just as egregious as these check cashing places that charge 500% interest or these places let you drive off the lot with a car and then we're going to repossess it and ruin you in a month if you complain about the warranty or just all the kinds of things that hurt the poor. I mean, you know, the other day um, I was in a conversation uh, with with my wife and we were talking about um, that there's so much that when it comes to the poor, I, I think, I, you know, obviously when you read scriptures, what, what, it, what, what it, God is most upset about is when people take advantage of the poor. Mm-hmm. We can have all kinds of conversations about how people get poor, why they stay poor, how you can break out of poverty. We can get, I mean, there's a thousand conversations, but if, but if you want to drill to the heart of the biblical concern, regardless of why they're poor, it's when you take advantage of their poverty. And, and that, 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 that is, that's when, that's when God says justice will be mine. When I think of the heartbreak of, I mean, just the anxiety that I would, that it unnecessarily causes people who, you know, let's say they are going through, you know, they've got a cancer diagnosis or something, you know, going through such a trial in their life at a point when God so desperately wants to make his presence and love known, but to feel only, only that you have been unfaithful and that God must be mad at you, you know, at a time when you should not be feeling that way. Like that, I mean, when you said malpractice, I'm like, that is malpractice to represent God in such a way that he abandons us in our suffering. Um, that, that feels like malpractice for me. Oh gosh. Well, okay. So I think the appropriate response then as people are listening to this is, okay, well, how do I know if I'm going to a church that promotes prosperity theology? Maybe your pastor wears sneakers. There's nothing wrong with that. No, but I mean, like, sneakers. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For, good point. All right. But, but I, wear, I wear what are called dad shoes, which uh, <laughs> someone the other day said, you've been wearing the same kind of shoes for so long. They've actually come back in fashion. And I said, oh, well, that's good because I've got like two or three pairs I ordered. <laughs> I this is a true story. Wow. I can testify. They actually teased me. They said, you're probably one of those. They were trying to make a joke. You know, it's got two or three pairs of those in your closet. And I kind of went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That, those of you who are listening, I, I can co-sign on that. <laughs> Thank you. But like all to say, like it's not like pastors self-identify as followers of this movement. It just is so much more subtle. And so what are some red flags that churchgoers might want to look out for? Well, I mean, I hope that, that as we've been saying this and, and walking through this conversation, I hope that our listeners are going, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what I've been hearing. And, you know, and that they know. I mean, we've been I don't think we've held back. I think we've been pretty clear. But let me just list some things, some of it's, you know, to recap, but also some other things. If you're hearing this stuff about seed faith um, with the promise of financial return, I, I do believe that there can be seed faith, there can be investment, there can be steps of faith. But this sense of almost like, um, almost like, hey, invest in crypto. If you invest like this, you're going to get like 20, 30, 40 percent return and they make it more of an, like a stock market thing as opposed to a, a, a real faith return that could be anything. 
uh, I would run for the hills. If you hear this name it, claim it kind of mentality that that faith is treated like rubbing a bottle and to get a genie and you get your three wishes and they say, hey, you want that job. Hey, you want that salary increase. Hey, you want that house. You want that dream. You want you want you know, you want that child to become a Christian. Then you just give this or you do that. You know, whoa, that 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 that, you know, that that kind of stuff is dangerous talk. Also, look for the absence of the talk of suffering. The absence of the talk of pain, the absence of the the carrying of your cross. Uh, you know, you had mentioned how tragic it is someone's going through a terrible illness. And, and, and you know, the, the heart of that message is, yes, we pray. We pray for healing. We pray for all kinds of things. But we're also praying that you'll experience the presence of God in and through this pain. Yeah. And so, um, so if it's all positive and there's never this sense of sacrifice or commitment or something like that, then or going without or selflessness, then that would be a flag. Um, again, I, I can't stress enough. Do this, get this. Do this, get this. Do this, achieve this. Uh, that's 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 a red flag. Um, another one is is where every service is a pep rally. Hmm. Every service is just uh, a pep rally to get you all wound up, and and you know, and until the next week's wound up, and all about just you know, you know, you just walk out of there. It's 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 a it, and and a lot of what you hear is no different than what you would have heard in Oprah. Or any self-help book, and it's just kind of baptized, and and so be and and you know and where and where and where the worst distortions of scripture are made, where where a, a, the clear teaching of a scripture is not clearly taught, but it's just used as a jumping-off point for some kind of rant about that is all about you know God wants the best for you and you can have all this and you know just got to be so careful of that. Yeah. And also, I do think, and you mentioned this, and I joked about it, but I'll just go ahead and mention it. It's when, when there's this presentation of wealth by the leaders. They love to drive up in their Bentley, or they love to be wearing these $5,000 suits. Or, they, or there is, there's an entire website called Preachers and Sneakers that highlights, um, sadly, uh, individuals who are leading churches wearing shoes that cost in the thousands. And, and, um, and, and so when there's that flaunting of wealth, um, which I don't think is biblical at all, <laughs> much less for a leader. Um, and, and, uh, but that, that flaunting almost like purposeful, like, Hey, look at me, this can be you. Yeah. I mean, you would have to, like, that's part of the, the, that's part of the image. I was like, you're yeah. creating this image of mm-hmm. success, this image of, of this is what it means to walk with Jesus and, you know, and, and. And uh, I, I just think that any of these things should be should be tip offs. And when you have even more than one of them present, uh, run for the hills. Mm. Well, I appreciate that filter, and I know that our listeners do too. Um, just to have that frame of mind, because like you said, I mean, it's it it can be so subtle. This is sprinkled in with a lot of other truths, and well, with other truths and with things that that are biblical, and so. But if we do notice some of these things, I mean, we don't want that to become a part of our theology or to subtly find their way into our own thinking or our own actions. So for our faith. So I appreciate that, Jim. So thank you. Um, We're out of time. So thank you for today's conversation. Thank you for those of you who listened. And we will be back again next week with another great conversation.